0: Are you glad for the grace of God this morning? I trust that we were singing with that energy and that zeal because we realized the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you meet me in the book of Galatians, chapter one? Galatians, chapter one, beginning in verse 11. Father, we pray in the precious name of Jesus Christ that you would reveal and unveil the depths of your grace for us. Lord, let us feel that freedom that you promised us. In this gospel, Lord, let us rejoice alone and boast in Christ alone. Help us, Lord. Would you take this word and would you pierce our hearts with it? Would you comfort our souls? Lord, would you make every man disappear As that was the goal of Paul in this very letter, to esteem and to present Christ and Christ alone. We ask these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. After the Apostle Paul introduces his letter in cutthroat fashion, he desires to continue his main point of defending the message of the gospel, which is the message of grace, which is the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And last week we saw how Paul warned the people of their drifting to a distorted gospel without pulling any punches. He went right for it. He wanted to come right to the point, right from the get-go. And now he continues to expand on that thought originally, but with a different emphasis. Paul wants to continue to defend this message of the grace of God And now he does so by actually validating and defending his own ministry. Because as much as these false teachers that were creeping into the Galatian area and were trying to present this false teaching, and Paul was warning them of that false teaching, simultaneously these false teachers were telling the Galatians that Paul was a false teacher and that what he was preaching was a false message. And we can see that, in the way Paul defends his ministry, we can almost imagine what these false teachers were whispering in the ears of these Galatians. Something along the lines of, where did this message of the grace of God come from? Do you realize the, the history, do you realize how far the law goes back? Who is this Paul to have authority to try to come and say that God has brought this new covenant what, 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 kind of, what kind of credentials does he have? This Christianity thing is just this new movement. It, it's going to pass. And, and Paul realizes this. And so he's about to come in now and defend his own ministry. And this portion of scripture that we're about to read might be very difficult on the surface level to relate to in our lives. Because Paul's talking very personally here. Paul's talking about his own ministry. So when it comes to wondering how all scripture is breathed out by God, how do I take Paul's personal defense to his ministry and apply it to my life? I'm not an apostle. I'm not trying to validate my credentials before false teachers. But the Holy Spirit put this in here with great length and great space because as much as this is Paul trying to give more reasons to the Galatians why they should hold so tight to the gospel that he preached to them, you and I can glean from these very same reasons so that we can be ever more confident in this gospel. And so we have to see what Paul's trying to say here and, and see that this is absolutely relatable to us because think about the Apostle Paul's influence on the Christian faith. Think about it for a moment. Think about how much of your New Testament and mine is authored by the Apostle Paul. We're talking 13 books. We're talking about a vessel that was used by God to define and to describe great theological depths and practical implications of the Christian faith. We're talking about a man who had the boldness and the assurance by the Holy Spirit to say, follow me as I follow Christ. We're talking about a man who is the main character in the book of Acts. So whether you and I realize it or not, most of what we believe in Most of what we understand about who Jesus Christ is, his message, at least in depth, comes from the Apostle Paul. Wouldn't it be responsible of us to inquire who this man is? Shouldn't we take it upon ourselves to say, who is this man, the Apostle Paul? What's his story? Where did he come from? Why is he the main voice, so to speak, in the book of Acts and and even the majority of the New Testament? Because our faith traces back to this man's ministry, essentially. Yes, Jesus Christ, yes, in the Gospels, yes, Peter, John, but the Apostle Paul, the chief of the Apostles, is where we derive most of our understanding of our faith. And so Paul now is going to not just give the Galatians confidence in his own ministry because it traces back to his ministry. He's going to give us confidence in his ministry so that we understand that it is nothing of natural nature or man-driven ambition. Let's read from verse 11 down. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God and violently, violently, and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. If you're taking notes, here's at least three reasons in the text that we're about to read of how we can have confidence in this gospel even today. Number one, the origin of Paul's message. Look what he says in verse 11 For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. So Paul makes a general statement here right from the beginning in his defense of his ministry. And what is he saying here essentially? The message, the content of what I delivered to you Galatians did not come from some popular school of thought. It did not derive from some modern day charismatic leader that desired a following. It wasn't conjured up by some philosopher or a great thinker. It did not come from the brain of a human. The origin of this message, very simply put, is supernatural. It is not man's idea. It is God's idea. It is not man's plan. It is God's plan. It is not man's way of thinking how we can th- get to God. It is God's way of him reaching to us so that we can reach to God. This is not a man's idea. This is not philosophy. This is not something that I learned in some teaching. No, 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 no. This is totally divine. This man, the Apostle Paul, wants to assure that what he wrote about, what he traveled extensively for, what he was willing to die for, was not man's gospel. And I want to let you know that, he says, generally. And now he gets personal. For I, I did not receive it from any man. Now Paul zones in to himself in a way that it should give us chills. All of us in here I'm sure a majority of us can testify that the way we came to saving faith is that we've heard it from a preacher, from a friend, from a family member, from a sermon, whatever. We've heard it from a different human vessel that has preached the gospel faithfully. And that person has received the gospel from another human vessel according to Romans 10. That's how people hear and that's how they believe when somebody goes out faithfully. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. We hear it from other people who have been transformed and testify to how the gospel has changed their lives and how it's objective truth regardless. And what Paul is saying here, though, concerning his own testimony, it is very unique. He's saying, that's not the case with me. I did not receive it from another person. No apostle came up to me and preached to me the gospel. No Christian contemporary that's been transformed by the gospel has come up to me and witnessed to me. Now, it is a fact that... He, in his day, must have heard about this Christian movement and about Jesus because he was the persecutor of that very faith. So he heard about it, but there's no strong evidence that anybody at any point has come up to him personally and said, Have you heard about Jesus Christ? And we're about to find out that nobody probably would dare to do that because they'd have their throat slit or thrown into prison. And so this man says, I did not receive it from any man. Why? Why did he not receive it from any man? Because he directly received it from the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he says next. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Think about how profound that is. This man, again, who went about preaching as the core message, the person of Jesus Christ, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his return. That was the central theme of his message. Amazingly enough, was taught to him by the very person that he preached about. I got it directly from the mouth of Christ himself. I did not receive it from any man. I did not sit in some school, though he sat under the greatest teachers of the law in his day. No, no, no. I received it directly from the Savior. And this is so important to understand because him and the apostles needed that. In Ephesians 2.20, look what it says about the church that it is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So we know that he personally received it from the resurrected Christ because, again, the church would be built upon their eyewitness testimony, would be built upon the revelation that they had received, the the other 12 that walked with Jesus for three years, and Paul, who for three years, we're about to find out, received something from God directly himself as well, and all of what we believe in is built upon that revelation. And Paul is saying here, I received it directly from Christ, and that's your foundation. That's what you can trust, and he says in Ephesians. I received it directly from the Lord. The first reason that Paul presents to why we can have strong confidence is that the origin of his very message is supernatural. But now he goes to reason number two. Not just the origin of Paul's message, but the testimony Of Paul's conversion. Verse 13. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism. How I persecuted the church of God violently. And tried to destroy it. So he says here. "You, You heard my testimony. You knew who I was. And you knew what I was doing to the very faith. That I'm now trying to defend. Paul was not an ordinary man. And he knew that very well himself. This minister's life at one point was defined and dedicated to eradicating the church, to completely bringing it to shreds, to powder. Paul, in his unconverted days, did not respectfully host debates with Christians to try to disprove why they're wrong. Paul hurled campaigns to try to bring this thing to non-existence completely. We're talking about a vicious man. We're talking about a man that was possessed with a perfect hatred for this concept of the Messiah being Jesus Christ and this idea of grace and him fulfilling the law on our behalf. Are you kidding me? And so we we know here that what he's trying to say to the Galatians is, in a moment, I defended this law very strongly at one point. And you knew who it was. You knew what my reputation was, whether it was shared by him, or it's quite possible that the public sphere just knew about the Apostle Paul because he was making havoc in the world, at least in the Christian circles they knew who this man was. And I want you to imagine if you go home tonight, you turn on the news, and you discover that there is this man out there traveling the world that is attempting to destroy every single church, trying to imprison every single Christian, trying to burn up every single New Testament Bible, and is doing so at an alarming rate, all for a sudden. What would you think if you saw that on the news tonight, as you sit on your couch? I'll tell you what I would think. This is the work of the devil, and this man is beyond hope. And that's who Paul was at one point. But his destructive mindset was not motivated by blind hatred. His campaign to destroy Christianity was not something that was random, He says in verse 14, Why? And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the tradition of my fathers. This man was a star pupil in Judaism. His mind was way more advanced than those on his level and his age. He had the mental capacity to understand the Old Testament scriptures. He had a zeal in which he could say confidently in Philippians 3, I'm the Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He goes, righteousness under the law, Philippians 3, blameless. And he's saying right here, That the very thing that was motivating me to go to people's homes, to rip open families and to tear mothers from their children and fathers from their wives. To come in and to take leaders of this Christian movement and try to completely silence them was because I had this zeal for the law. I lived this law as perfectly as I could and I was willing to die for this law that God had given to the people of Israel from Mount Sinai. He ate, slept, breathed the law. He was willing to kill for the law. And that's the point that he's trying to make here, is that essentially, if anybody would advocate for circumcision, if anybody would advocate for keeping the feasts and the festivals, and all the dietary laws and all the dress codes, all of that, Paul says, it would be me. I would be the one that would be the front man and center for this message. And he's not saying here that he is advocating the law, but what he's trying to say is that I'm not opposing these false teachers because I don't know what this law is. Because that's a possibility that these false teachers are saying, Paul doesn't even know what the law is. Paul doesn't understand. He goes, are you kidding me? I do understand. Not only do I understand, I was campaigning for it with everything within me. And it's amazing that indirectly he's even making a statement here. What were these false teachers trying to do? Get rid of the message of grace? No, they were trying to mix grace and law. And Paul's trying to say here, listen, even in my unconverted days, I knew that that wouldn't work. Even in my unconverted days, I knew that it wasn't grace plus law. It was just law. Even, Even in my unregenerate mind, I knew that you can't have the grace of God and works. It's either grace or works. And I was advocating for works. I said, do you see Paul's argument here? Do you see how Paul's trying to persuade the Galatians to realize that he's fully aware of what they're trying to champion and try to mingle with their own faith? So he says that, I'm not a random man. And then something happens in verse 15. But something happened. Although this man was possessed with a perfect hatred, breathing out threats to the church, he says, but a turning point is about to come. An intervention from God himself turned everything around and it was directly from God. Look what he says, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me, some translation says, in me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. He's trying to say, listen, Everything changed. I got saved. I got saved in radical fashion. I was delivered from my false understanding. And not on the surface level, Paul is going deep. Paul's not just saying I understood who Jesus was, and I, no, no, no. He's saying something very significant. He's going into the understanding of God's foreknowledge and how he works things before they even come to pass. And he says it in this way, when he who had set me apart before I was born. Think about the weightiness of that. If you and I as the people of God want one reason why we believe that life in the womb is sacred, it's for this. That while that baby is developing in the womb, God already has a plan set for that child. So there I am. As I am developing and my limbs are coming and my nerves are coming together, God from eternity past has already given me a plan for my life and that is to preach him among the Gentiles. And he says here that he called me by his grace. He called me by his grace. Paul's not saying because of my eloquence. Paul's not saying because I had some passion Concerning the law, that God says, hmm, that's some information that I can use for my glory. Paul says, it has nothing to do with what I've developed, my experience, my head knowledge, my zeal. It is solely by His grace alone. There's nothing that I contributed to the reason why He called me and saved me. And he knew that. He felt that. You can see it in other letters as we're going to find out in a moment. He realized that he was the least deserving person to not just be saved, but to be an apostle and to preach him among the Gentiles. No wonder this man was passionate about the message of grace. It wasn't just a theological concept of Paul. He knew it experientially. He felt it. It was branded on his heart, not just written in his mind. Called me by his grace. And he says here to do one thing, to preach him. He knew that he would be the last candidate. He knew that if you were to write a list of who should be the chief apostle, that he would be nowhere near the top. No wonder this man was so humble and low. How tempting it is to look at this portion of scripture as a means to debate whether or not Paul himself had a choice of whether he could be that chief apostle or not, right? Did anybody's mind go there as we are reading these texts? Understanding of God's foreknowledge, how God already determined it and planned it. But I want you to turn your Bibles to Acts 26. Acts 26. And see how Paul explains his testimony from a different angle. And it is not dismissing the fact that God knows all things and God has the ability to determine things before they happen. But it's just nice to see how the Bible has a balance in understanding these matters. Let's begin From verse 16, he's sharing his testimony before King Agrippa. So he's talking about how Jesus met him on the road to Damascus. And he says, "But rise and stand up upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you." So he's saying, "I appointed you as a service, a servant, I appointed you as a witness, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you." Now here's the mission to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins in a place among those who are sanctified, sanctified, sanctified by faith in me. Now look what he says. That's his testimony. That is a detailed version of what he's saying back in Galatians 1. That's what God called me to do, had destined me to do, had set apart for me to do from my mother's womb. Now look what he says in verse 19. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient. To the heavenly vision, do we see it? Implying what that he could have been disobedient, even though God had set him for this purpose, even though God had set him apart for this goal and for this calling. In Galatians one, we get the impression that it is all God, and it is all God. But here we see man's responsibility. I was not disobedient. So God has a call for your life. Good work set before you before you even walked guess what? You have a choice of whether or not you want to walk that out or not. Significant statement. And so we see here that Paul now comes back in Galatians 1 and he says, yeah, God called me and I knew that. And I'm not going to try to attempt how that works with our finite minds, brothers and sisters. I just know this, that God is all-knowing, He knows the future. He knows what we're going to do. He knows what we're not going to do. But at the same time, we have a choice to make in this life. This mystery concerning who call is and what his calling is about even gets more detailed. Now, if you were to answer this question, how would you answer it? Why did God choose the Apostle Paul? Again, Paul says it's simply by the grace of God. And that's a good answer. It's by his grace. But Paul himself knew that there was even a deeper reason why he was the choice of God for this specific role. And the answer is found actually in 1 Timothy. And you need to turn there. I encourage you strongly to turn your Bibles there so you can mark it if you have the chance. And 1 Timothy, chapter 1. Verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Do you see that? I'm the foremost. I'm the chief of sinners. He came to save sinners, yes. But who's on the top of the list? It's me. Who says that? Somebody who understands the grace of God. And look at what the reason he gives for why God chose him for this service. But I received mercy for this reason that in me, as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. This is the reason. Because I realize I'm the worst of the worst and I want to tell you why God called me by his mercy and used me for his glory. That whenever anybody would hear about the Apostle Paul, read about the Apostle Paul, hear a sermon, they would realize the extent of the mercy and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is essentially saying the reason why God chose me in his foreknowledge, think about this, God in his foreknowledge, Paul is in the, his mother's womb, knowing what Paul's going to do, knowing what he's going to, concerning his hatred for the church and for the Christian message, I know what he's going to do and guess what, I'm going to flip the script and I'm going to make him a trophy of my grace for the world to see. What I am willing and able to do, not just for one man, but for all men. What does he say early on in verse 13? Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, I received mercy. And I know why. God, God revealed to me why, that he chose me. So that nobody's beyond hope concerning salvation. Now I want you to think here this morning, I want you to think in your personal life of the most... how can we say, unrealistic perhaps, almost impossible, stubborn, wicked, rebellious, uninterested individual concerning the Christian faith. Think about that person. Coworker, relative, friend, sibling, parent. Think about the person that you know in your life that you cannot, it's, I mean, if there's anybody that's going to get saved, that person in your list is going to be the last one. That person, who is it? Now, take that individual, line them up beside the Apostle Paul. (coughs) Line them up beside, and ask yourself this person in my life, have they imprisoned any Christians? Did they find it their life ambition to destroy the Christian faith? Did they go into my room and burn my Bible? you know what Paul's saying if he can save me he can save that person if he's willing to call me he's willing to call that person if he's willing to deliver and use me he's willing to deliver and use that person Paul says I'm a canvas of his mercy so when you look around you you're, if you look at yourself you say I'm beyond hope he says no 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 look at me I'm the foremost I'm the chief of sinners you and i might rejoice in this truth but a part of us might feel well paul was completely at the mercy of god we don't see any evidence of somebody approaching paul and how can we when this man was going out destroying people who believed this jesus no wonder god had to come himself in christ But perhaps, 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 there is at least one recorded incident in the book of Acts where we get maybe some idea of how a believer might have influenced the Apostle Paul. So turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 7. This is a chapter that is dedicated to Stephen, the young man who was a martyr. And he was preaching before the religious men of his day that were antichrist. christ Notice in verse 58, what it says. Then they cast him out of the city and, someone, and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. The first time Saul is mentioned in the scriptures. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So here we see Stephen being martyred before all these religious prominent men, one of them being a young man named Saul, who was later known as Paul. Look at verse one of chapter eight, and Saul approved his execution. Paul had some level of authority where he played a role in the first martyr for Christianity to be played out. And what's fascinating about this is that we see Stephen here echoing the very words of the Savior, Lord, receive my spirit. Forgive them for they didn't know what they're doing. In other words, he's saying a different wording. He's saying, do not hold this sin against them. And I think that there's something significant here because there's quite a strong possibility that based on the way Stephen received his own death, And that prayer that he prayed, it could be very well so that God honored this simple man's prayer in that moment. Because we read in the next chapters, especially chapter 9, that Paul gets converted. And that God did not hold his sin against him. In fact, one church father said it this way. This is a strong statement because some would disagree, but it seems to be quite a possibility that if Stephen had not prayed, the church would not have received Paul. And so do you see the angles that we have concerning Paul's testimony? We have God's working and God's dealing from eternity past. We have Paul himself, his own response to the call. And here we have an outside influence, a simple man's prayer and his dying breath that potentially God heard. You say, how does all that work? I don't know. All I know is this, is that if you know somebody that I'm sure nobody in here would say is anywhere close to the Apostle Paul, God heard Paul, uh, Stephen's prayer, surely he can hear ours. And we can believe God that he can transform even the worst of the worst. Who is that person? Brothers in here that serve on Thursday nights when you go out and drive up to Woodridge and you look into those eyes and you see, I see impossible. Don't forget the apostle Paul. Murderer. Not just a murderer. of random people. Murderer of Christians, of all things, and all people. Paul says, would you remember me? I'm a trophy of God's grace. First reason for why we can have strong confidence in this gospel is because of the origin of the message. Two, the testimony of the messenger. And number three, the foundation of Paul's ministry in verse 16. Let's go back to Galatians 1 and see what else he adds to his argument. He says here in verse 16 was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who are apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. So what is he saying here that after his conversion Paul did not consult with any of the apostles. So he received the supernatural intervention from God in Christ. And after his conversion that was totally supernatural, he did not receive greater understanding of this gospel from any other human vessel. So the beginning of his conversion was supernatural. And the content of the gospel that he so grew in and wrote about even in his epistles, he says that did not come essentially from other men. Do you see what he's trying to say? He's trying to say here that what I know about this truth came from a season of time where nobody, including the apostles, were involved in. He says, after I got converted, yes, we see in Acts 9 that he goes and he preaches a little bit. But then it says that he goes away and many days have passed. And we'll look at that next week. Many days have passed. How many days? We'll look at verse 18. After three years. Paul the apostle, after his conversion, goes into the wilderness for three long years. And he says, no one was with me in terms of communicating about this faith say why is that important what was he doing in the wilderness exactly what you think receiving what Christ had revealed to him in the beginning greater revelation of who Jesus is of what this gospel is about can you imagine all the things that he had to relearn can you imagine all the things that had to be reconstructed in his mind Can you imagine that time spent in those three years going over the Old Testament scriptures from Genesis all the way to the minor prophets realizing, oh, that's Christ. Oh, that's Jesus. Oh, there's another prophecy about him. Oh, that's what Isaiah meant. And here's this man being humbled and being renewed by God himself in this time of isolation with the Lord, receiving what you and I are benefiting from in the epistles. I believe that a majority of what Paul taught in the epistles came from this season, this window of time he was brought by God to receive it directly from the hand of God. And yes, he goes, and we're going to find out next week, he goes to meet with the apostles so that now he has the confirmation of other men who walk with Jesus. But the same way some some would say that the apostles had three years walking with Jesus, Paul had three years alone with Jesus. And he's here speaking, praying, and, and, and examining his own understanding of the word. And all that he knew was potentially rooted in this time of his life. He goes, listen, this gospel that I told you, yeah, I received it from Christ, but it was expanded by Christ as well. I had a one-on-one teaching session with the Lord Jesus Christ. And there he is downloading, downloading, downloading things into me, preparing me to go out to fulfill the ministry that he called me to. Isn't that a wonderful principle in terms of how God deals with all his servants? Know this, that if you feel called to a public service, A public ministry for the Lord. Guarantee that God will bring you in private to get you ready for that public ministry. He will deepen your roots. He will chisel your character. He'll give you small ministries so that you can know how to grow in your understanding of dealing with people and dealing with different aspects of life. He did it with Moses. He did it with David. He did it with John the Baptist. He did it with Jesus. Do not be discouraged if you want to do great things for God and you feel like you're hidden. God has hidden the Apostle Paul. God has hidden his son. God will hide you. God will hide anybody that wants to serve him with a great passion because he knows that the deeper your roots, the more fruit you'll bear. If you try to fast forward that season, it's only going to create a a structure that will not be as stable as it would have been if you just waited on God and sought his face. Do you have free time? Do you desire to serve God and you have that free time? You'd be like, I have so much energy, Lord, use me. Use it to get to know God. Seek his face, read his word, get to know him. Because a time is coming which you won't have that same time. I've heard it over and over again that many preachers today that are preaching in their 50s and 60s, all that they know at that point of their lives is from that season of life in their 20s. When they were just in-gathering and in-gathering and in-gathering and in-gathering. Don't waste that time. don't don't rush that time to want to do great things for God he understands but he also understands that time of waiting on the Lord is so crucial to seek true effectiveness for his glory happened to the apostle Paul so we see here that three main reasons that Paul gives in this portion of scripture and he's inspired by the spirit to say in this portion of this letter you want to know why you should hold on to this gospel of grace Galatians number one The origin of this message is solely supernatural. Number two, the testimony of this messenger is nothing short of supernatural. And number three, the development of this understanding of the gospel was in fact supernatural. So what are those false teachers all about? Where are they getting their ideas from? What's their authority? What's their credentials? Here are mine. Paul's not doing this in pride Paul is doing this because it requires emergency response to a crisis theological incident that's happening. And how does it relate to us? This is how it relates to us. This is our heritage. Again, your faith and mine traces back to this man being a key element and a key figure in what we believe in. And you should feel strong to know that not just one apostle, but 12 others walk with this Jesus talk with this Jesus, receive from this Jesus, the same Jesus that rose from the dead. And this is where we derive our understanding of truth concerning who God is and truth about eternal life. Be encouraged and be steadfast. Be immovable. Have strong confidence. Let that song now have that greater understanding, that greater oomph to it because you know what you believe in. Goes all the way back from the living Christ meeting with true men changing their lives, and laying them as the foundation in which you and I are being built upon, even today. Galatians, I have more to say, but chew on these three reasons until next week. Would you bow your heads and pray? Father, we come before you realizing the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, that if you can save a man like the Apostle Paul, you can save anyone. Lord, with the simplicity of this message, let it produce a depth of fruit, a depth of peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Lord, we realize these three reasons and we rejoice in them. And we, Lord, choose to worship you in light of them. God, thank you that there is nothing random about our faith. Thank you that There's nothing about our faith that should make us question why we believe in what we believe in. Lord, you have strategically in your wisdom and in the depths of your love have rescued a man by the name of the Apostle Paul so that he would be a foundational concept, a foundational base for us to grow upon, to be strengthened in. Lord, we pray for those that seem to be impossible to come to you. Even now, Lord, the same way that the Apostle Paul had an intervention from heaven, would you do it to them? Wherever they are going, wherever they are staying, even now, wherever they are this morning, we pray that, that Damascus Road encounter would be real to them and that they would realize that they've been wrong all along and they wouldn't feel condemned about it. They would realize that you and your grace have seen past that and are willing to save them and not just save them, but to use them. Lord, thank you that you did it to us. Reveal your son in us, Lord. Father, we pray that as the second week has concluded, Lord, continue to unwrap the peace that comes from understanding the grace in Jesus. Lord, this is our inheritance. We need you to help us to know it and to sense it and to walk in the freedom of it. So Lord, we pray that even now as we sit in this room, we would rest in the knowledge of our rich heritage in the faith, where all of this comes from. So Lord, we say thank you. And Lord, for whatever you have set apart for us from our mother's wombs, we say yes to it. Whatever you have called us to in this life, we say yes to it. We will not be disobedient to what you have prepared for us. Keep us faithful. Keep us longing. Keep us yearning. Keep us low. Lord, we worship you in light of this message this morning. Receive it because we believe that you hear us now. In Jesus' name we pray.